The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. I am so glad that you could all join us today because... Um, our guests today are two of my favorite people in the filmmaking world. We have Josh and Rebecca Tickell, and they have made some amazing films, some documentaries in the past that we've talked about on Go Green Radio. They made uh, a, an award-winning documentary called Fuel. Uh, the last time we had them on, we were talking about their documentary called Freedom, both of which I highly recommend. But today, we're talking about... Uh, their new documentary, which has just been released, called The Big Fix. And it really is the untold story of the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill in New Orleans. And you may think, oh gosh, I saw all the news coverage of that. I watched CNN until my eyeballs uh, fell out. But you know what? Josh and Rebecca have captured something on film that is very different. And it may just outrage you to the point that you feel like you've got to make some tremendous changes in your life. Um, welcome back to Go Green Radio, Josh and Rebecca. Great to have you. Thank, Thank you. you. Good, to, well, could, good to hear you again, Jill. It's great to hear you both again as well. And I am just astounded at what you've captured on video. I've watched your movie twice now, <laughs> and I just couldn't get enough. I thought it was great. Congratulations on the release. You know, before we dive into the details of the film, I'd love for you both to share with our listeners what the last couple of years have been like for you. I mean, from shooting the film to bringing it to fruition on screen, give us some idea of what it takes to see a project like this come through from beginning to end. Rebecca, you want to take that one? Sure. You know, um, it's always a sort of a dance for documentary filmmakers. Um, you know, we certainly didn't plan to make this movie. When we um, started to see the footage, like everyone else, on television of the oil gushing into the Gulf of Mexico, it was really hard to watch. Um, and, you know, it was depressing, and it made you feel helpless. And I remember exactly where I was when I first heard that there was this oil spill happening, and it was on Earth Day, you know, which sort of made matters worse. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we didn't know what to do at first. You know, we, we had established ourselves as people who were passionate about this issue, who we're committed to being, you know, leaders in this arena. And so when this happened, it was like, oh, gosh, well, I guess we really, I guess we're going to have to do something about this now. Uh, we don't want this to be in vain. So finally we decided we were going to go down there and we are going to bring a camera crew and we were going to bring some celebrities, some star power with us to make sure that what we were doing was going to get some attention. And the first thing we did was we organized a march for green energy and we thought that would be a good place to start. And so we brought Peter Fonda down and Jason Mraz down. Of course, we had no money, so we were you know, asking for donations. We drove the uh, biodiesel-powered 
bus down there, and it was very sort of grassroots activist at first, and we thought, you know, this is going to be the turning point. This is going to be where America finally wakes up and they see that, you know, this is the, the moment in time in history where we stopped using fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And, of course, when we got down there, it was a totally different situation from what we had planned. Um, the biggest shock to us was when we actually went down to the beach and we saw the oil coming ashore, and we realized that it was a, so different from how it was being reported on television. Now, there was a certain point when the oil well got capped, when there was a massive exodus of media and reporters, and everyone left, and Obama said the beaches were safe and clean and that the fish were fine to eat, and come on, tourism, let's, let's all go back down to the beautiful waters of the Gulf. But mm-hmm. we stayed, and we kept filming. And what we found was a very disturbing um, cover-up of what was truly going on. There was still oil leaking. Well, I mean, it's still leaking today, years after the oil supposedly had stopped leaking. Um, People were getting sick from exposure to oil and dispersant, myself included. And the the seafood that we were finding, and we, we went to the fishing grounds and we saw where these fish were coming from. There was visible oil there. And fishermen continue to this day to report to us that they won't eat the fish, that there's oil in their gills, oil in their gut, they have tumors, they're missing eyes. And you have to remember, you know, this is 30% of America's shrimp coming from the Gulf of Mexico that's being shipped to California, it's being shipped to New York, it's being shipped to Chicago. And, you know, the very rigorous method for testing whether or not this fish is safe for us to eat is a smell test. Mm-hmm. That when I saw that part in your film, I was floored. The sniffers, and we'll talk about the sniffers in a little bit. But that was as scientific as it got. Does it smell like oil? And and <laughs> that it, that was shocking to me. Now, Josh, I think it's really important for our listeners to understand that you have a very personal connection to this area. It's not like, you know, I know that you guys live in California as I do now, but you weren't just another, you know, couple of Hollywood types bringing a camera down to get in the middle of the media mix. You actually have a very personal reason for being in that area. So talk about your background with that area of the world, Josh. Sure. Well, you know, I grew up in Louisiana and in and around the Gulf Coast, did summer vacations in North Florida, and, uh, you know, my, the first movie that we did, Fuel, really details my history in that area and, uh, shows the suffering that my family actually went through because of oil pollution. And the pollution there is very acute. There are 150 petrochemical facilities between Baton Rouge and Houston. It's the largest petrochemical complex in North America. And the environmental regulations are, are lax. So the pollution's extreme. Uh, cancer cases, in that area can be up to a thousand times the national average. About one in four people have cancer, melanoma, or some um, some other form of, of pollution-related sickness. So I watched my mom get very sick, and I watched other members of my family die uh, from, ostensibly, uh, from oil pollution-related disease. And that's certainly colored my perspective and has set me on this sort of lifelong mission to find alternatives to oil. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that too, because I want everybody who's listening to know 
that they can have a voice in all of this and they can vote with their uh, dollars when it comes to how they spend their dollars on fuel and what they might be able to do. So I'm excited to talk about that. Let's go back to the Deepwater Horizon drill and what made it unique amongst all the rigs that are out in the Gulf. What was different about this rig? Well, the couple, couple of things about the Deepwater Horizon that are uh, really were modern marvels. Uh, yeah, at the time that it was built, it was the it was the most capable deep water rig in the world. Uh, it was built in you know Korea. It's it's capable. You know, it was rated to drill not at the depths that it was drilling at. First of all, that was the most important thing right off the bat. The rig was built with redundant safety systems. It has uh, multiple safety systems, probably over 25 different safety systems, shutdown systems, alarm systems, and the majority of those systems had been turned off at the time of the Deepwater Horizon explosion. Most of the alarm systems were disabled simply because they made noise and the crew needed to sleep. So here you've got a rig that's designed for very specific operation, and it has redundant safety systems, even, even automated, automated shutdown systems the majority of which are turned off. Then you put it in an area where it's not designed to drill. Then, on top of that, they drilled in a pocket that they knew was primarily gas. When gas and oil are mixed together and you drill into that sandstone, what happens is the gas pockets come up. And they'll come up in the middle of drilling, so you'll be getting oil, mud, 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 and then all of a sudden a gas pocket will come up, and it's called a kick. The whole rig shudders. And so, you know, leading up to the explosion, all of this was known. It wasn't like, uh, you know, one person was nefariously, you know, doing all of this. It, it was kind of the culture of, okay, we've got to get it done. Uh, we're on a deadline. We're spending a lot of money, and we've got to hit this. We've got to hit this oil. oil. Um, so now you've got a rig that's already kicking, meaning the gas pockets are coming up. They knew just by the formation, the ge- geological formation of the well, that it was primarily gas, like a high percentage of gas, one of the most gaseous pockets that we're drilling in North America. So all of these factors are compounding just leading up to this disaster. And and just a few days before the explosion, the reading on the rig, actually uh, the reading on the wellhead pressure went so low that any normal safety requirement would have said shut down drilling operations altogether because what happens is there's pressure coming out of that sandstone reservoir, and when mm-hmm. the pressure drops considerably, it means you've hit gas, and it means a big gas pocket is coming. And they ignored the warnings. They ignored they shut down more safety systems up until uh, the night before the explosion when BP executives actually were on the rig having a party, a celebration, for a perfect track record of safety on the rig. So they actually, rather than paying attention to all these very clear signs, you know, the oil industry is is not made to kill people. Uh, It's made to be a safe industry, and there are Mm -hmm. standards in place, but they ignored every single one of those standards. So, of course, you know, up to the sort of just the hubris of having the celebration of safety, and then, of course, the executives fly off the rig, and then, of course, the crew is sleeping, and they hit a massive gas pocket. And we don't know what it was that caused the initial explosion, but there's, the gas essentially enveloped the entire rig. So it could have been a motor, it could have been a spark, it could have been a light switch, literally anything 
Um, and and there were many, you know, this this thing is a massive floating ship. So something set it off, and from there the rest is history, um, including the massive cover-up, which the movie really shows. It really does. And, I, you know, I've heard various reports. Um, what did you find out in terms of what the crew was saying or what their feelings were about the safety of the rig leading up to the explosion? We've heard that the executives were partying <laughs> on the rig, but what about the crew members themselves? Well, the crew, you know, I, I, first of all, I want to uh, I want to create a really clear context for the crew. Drilling rig operations is one of the only things that you can do in the southern states if you're a blue-collar worker with a high school education that will get you six figures. Mm-hmm. Literally, it is one of the only jobs you can do. So these are people who have families. They have responsibilities at home. They're very aware that they're taking their lives in their hands. Uh, the majority of deaths occur on the way to or from a rig because it's so dangerous to do this work. You fly out in helicopters, you fly through hurricanes. Um, so they're very aware of the stakes of the game. Uh, and at the same time, they're very aware that this is their only opportunity to make this money. So if the supervisor says, turn the safety system off, drill faster, you know, you've got a choice of feeding your family uh, or doing what's right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the supervisor is going to tell you what's right. So it's very easy to look the other way. There's high pressure, high stakes all the time. Uh, that said, the crew, all of the surviving crew, minus the 11 who died, were taken to a holding ship. Uh, and they were not given immediate medical attention. Many of them were in need of medical attention. Those that were critically, uh, critically in critical condition were taken to a different holding ship where they were given uh, medical attention for severe burns and, and amputations and things. At that time, every single one of them uh, were required to sign a non-disclosure agreement, oh. meaning they would not talk to press, they would not talk to media, and they would not sue. So they waived their rights to speak. Now, what we have heard from those who have been willing to speak, uh, there were a couple who didn't sign who have been under tremendous legal pressure uh, from BP's representatives never to talk again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is that, um, you know, the crew at that point was all aware that 11 people had died. BP would not release that information for several days. So the family suffered. And they were oh. calling on the hour, every hour to the family, saying, we don't know what's happening. We're waiting for a Coast Guard report. There were eyewitnesses that saw most of the 11 die. So there was no mystery as to what had happened. But BP played that out, and the suffering continued. Uh, and then there was no mystery as to why the rig had exploded or what had happened. And, and that was played out. Um, so all of this, you know, teasing of sort of the American people was mm-hmm. completely, you know, it is nefarious, you know, mm-hmm. if not criminally uh, prosecutable. And, of course, now the federal judge in New Orleans has said, you know, in light of all of the evidence, that the executives of BP are not off the hook for this behavior. And, mm-hmm. and again, this is, not, um, this is not the way the industry is supposed to operate. And, again, this is 100% of America's transportation fuel comes from oil. So we've got to think, okay, if we're going to do this crazy thing, if we're going to burn all of this oil, at the very least, at the very least, we need government and industry assurance that we have safe energy. 
That's right. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. We're going to take a a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about what was the contingency plan? What what plan was in place to ensure the safety and what in the world went wrong? And we will be right back with more from Josh and Rebecca Tickell, the filmmakers of The Big Fix, when we return. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you ready to change your relationships, your business, your body, and your life? You'll want to tune in to Transformation Talk Radio with host Tony Litster. It's an inspiring hour of conversation, special guests, and wisdom that has made Tony an expert with personal life experience. His down-to-earth style will give you the keys to unlock your greatest potential. Listen for Transformation Talk Radio live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Listening can truly change your life. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. If you just happen to be tuning in, we are joined today by Josh and Rebecca Tickell. They are the dynamic duo of green documentaries. I mean, they are really, really on it when it comes to covering the topics that they've covered. I, I love their films. I was a big fan of their, their film Fuel. Uh, their film Freedom. Uh, I recommend all of these. They're in my green movie uh, compartment in my DVD section at home. And their latest film, The Big Fix, blew my mind. And that is not an easy thing to do because I see everything that's out there. You guys know that I, I watch all that's going on out there. And The Big Fix really shows 
uh, some amazing things that we don't know or didn't until I saw the big fix about the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Once the mainstream media left the Gulf, there was a lot more that went on, and Josh and Rebecca have captured that on film, and they even uh, did some covert filming, which was just amazing. I want to talk about the contingency plan. What kind of safety measures were supposed to be in place? What was supposed to happen if there was an explosion, which there was, of course, on the Deepwater Horizon rig? What was understood to be that contingency plan in the event that the rig sprung a leak? And uh, how were they supposed to deal with the accident? Well, Go well, ahead, you know, Josh. Yeah, the the amazing thing is is there is a basically a contingency plan in place. All of these oil companies have one. It has to be filed uh, with each rig as the rig begins to drill. The issue is that all of the contingency plans for all of the rigs in the Gulf of Mexico are the exact same plan. So it doesn't matter if the rig is 50 miles offshore. It doesn't matter if the rig's in two miles of water drilling in a gaseous pocket, a big rig, a small rig, any kind of rig. They actually all filed the same plan. It's a boilerplate template that a company just provides to these oil companies. And, of course, the template has things like uh, contingency plans for walruses, walruses in the Gulf of Mexico. There are no <laughs> walruses in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, it, it has uh, list safety directors who are dead. Uh, in case of emergency, these are people that are supposed to be called. And it, it states the quantities of certain materials and uh, contingency devices that are available, such as boom that can be deployed, um, oil sucker ships, uh, centrifuge ships, all of this stuff. 100% of which was not available at the time of the explosion. So essentially, you know, one of the flaws in our system and one of the things that the movie points out and one of the things that is correctable and that people can pressure Congress on is that every rig should have an individualized safety plan that is checked by an independent agency that actually verifies, hey, this is how much boom you can actually access. Okay, got it. This is this is real. This is this is like you know weapons of mass destruction. When they went to look for them, they didn't find them. When they looked when they looked for the boom, there was none. When they looked for the oil sucker ships, there was none. So uh, it was a real issue that came up in the testimony, and it remains today. Those same spill response plans are on file for every single oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico and they are completely false. Besides being absurd, it is downright negligent on the part of somebody. Whose job is it to check the viability of those contingency plans and to approve them? Ostensibly, it's the agency which used to be called the MMS, the Mineral Management Service. It's now been renamed. Uh, but renaming an agency doesn't actually make it more effective. So <laughs> you know, we've, got, we've got most of the same people in charge of the agency and most of the same policies. Some of the policies have actually gotten worse. Uh, but there's a loophole for every new policy that they've created. And Oceana did a complete study, a 50-page study, detailing the new regulations and showing how in every single case, uh, with the exception of just a handful of new changes, uh, the regulations are essentially the same or easily skirtable. So we have, we have essentially no regulation and no control over our deep water drilling, and this includes uh, California's coast, this includes Florida's coast, and this includes uh, the Arctic. 
Oh, you know, and it's funny that you say that, Josh, because just uh, this week, it was my husband's birthday, and we took a couple days off work, and we went down to California's Central Coast, and uh, as we stood there in Carmel and Monterey, and we were looking at all the wildlife and all the beautiful beaches there, I couldn't help but think about what we were going to be talking about this week um, with the BP Deepwater Horizon spill, and, and what an absolute travesty it would be if something like that happened. I couldn't imagine... Um, that's something like that happening off of California's coast and to know that, uh, we're in no better shape in terms of regulating or, or instituting safety and contingency plans in the case of a spill, um, really makes me, uh, quite nervous about the prospect of doing this off the coast of California. Um, what was the immediate, when you guys were there and you, you saw, you brought your cameras in and you saw what was going on right after the spill, what was the immediate impact of the spill on the locals and what was their first concern at that time? I mean, of course people were upset. Everyone was in shock. It's a very sad time when you you finally become aware that 11 people have died and you know, I assume that you know we weren't right there when the when the oil spill happened, but you know we're all associated with this. We all use fuel, so in mm-hmm. some sense, we're all responsible for the deaths of those eleven workers. But you know, the thing about this is, you know, Louisiana, South Louisiana, and the Gulf Coast area, their livelihood depends on three things: it depends on shrimp and fish, oil, and tourism. And all three of those things suddenly became impacted by what was going on with the oil spill. All three of them um, ceased to exist. They put a ban on fishing in the majority of the waters at first. Um, two people stopped going down there. And, of course, you know, the, everyone, they put a moratorium on, on drilling for the major rigs that were out in the water. Mm-hmm. So their livelihoods were impacted. You know, and here we show up thinking, yay, this is the turning point, and everybody's, you know, this is the opportunity to get off of oil. And what we found was very different from what we expected, or at least I expected. Josh is from Louisiana, so he has a better understanding of how it works down there. But, you know, for those of us that were visiting and who were there to make this turning point off of oil, that was not what we found that the locals wanted. They wanted this to go away for the most part. You know, of course, they didn't want... Um, people getting sick, and they didn't want to send out toxic shrimp, and you know, but they wanted their livelihood. They they wanted a future, and for them, that means shrimp, petroleum, and tourism. So mm-hmm. they worked very closely with BP to um, quickly make sure that the appearance of the damage that was being done was very small. You know, we spoke to people from different departments down there whose sole job was to make sure that it appeared from the outside like the fish were safe. To, whose sole job was to make sure that it looked like the oil damage was very minimal, not very much of it was washing ashore. And literally when you would drive down the freeway from Baton Rouge to New Orleans, there would be these giant billboards on the side of the road that said, Demand Louisiana Shrimp. And this is while the oil is still leaking. So you can imagine that there was a, a real mixture of emotions and feelings. But for the most part, I'd say about 80% of the people down there wanted to keep drilling they wanted to keep fishing, and they wanted to get tourism started as soon as humanly possible because that was what their future was based on. That's their entire economy, and and as tragic... They, they celebrate the, the, um, the Shrimp and Petroleum Festival. <laughs> Together. They have that, that every year, so you know, that's, that's what they celebrate. That's, 
that's their their thing. So, you know, it'd be like trying to take the entertainment industry away from Hollywood. You know, oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. What else would they do? Well, and the, the thing is, I mean, that's understandable. There's, I can't think of anywhere in the world where you could shift gears that quickly and take you know, decades worth of work into an economy and switch it over to something else that would provide livelihood and a paycheck for every citizen that was currently living off the old economy. And that is a huge challenge. And that's something I didn't think about. Yeah, and we're they, gonna... had, they had a huge um, meeting with, with the, the Governor Governor Jindal with 90,000 people in the Cajun Dome, and they were demanding that they lift the oil moratorium the drilling moratorium because they wanted to go back to drilling wow you know it's just something that i didn't expect honestly i think i would have been in your camp rebecca where that's not what i would have expected um you know the local citizens to be thinking but it does make perfect sense we've got to take a quick commercial break but when we come back much much more with josh and rebecca tickell and their film the big fix if you want to check out their website on the while we're taking a commercial break you can go to www.com TheBigFixMovie.com. We'll be back with more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even coworker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things. And together, you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Glad that you could all join us. I want to give a big shout out to all my tweeps who are out there listening. You guys are awesome. And I love the fact that you interact with me and you send me questions and whatnot um, as we're doing the show. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Jill Buck. Love to have you following us. And, uh, just following along with the show. If you want to check out the website for The Big Fix, um, that's the movie that we're talking about, don't close this tab in your web browser. Open up a new tab in your uh, web browser and keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com. But check out www.thebigfixmovie.com. You can get all kinds of awesome information, some cool pictures, some trailers of the movie. One of the things you're going to notice right off the bat is the striking photo of Rebecca and Josh Dekel on the cover of the movie. They're wearing gas masks, and that was for a reason. You guys went out on a local fisherman's boat, and you were advised to wear gas masks. At that point, what was the perceived danger? Why did you have to wear those gas masks? You know, it was interesting because at that time, none of the VU workers, the Vessel of Opportunity workers, which were the, the fishermen who had been hired by BP to go out and scout where the oil was and report back to BP, and um, you know, none of them were allowed to wear gas masks. They, they literally were, would be fired if they put on gas masks. They did not want media showing images of cleanup workers wearing gas masks for fear that that would scare people. So there was two camps of people down there during that time. There, the, the main camp of people was everything is fine, there is no danger, everything is safe, don't scare people. That was the main the main viewpoint. But there was a small group of people who were considered radicals at the time who were saying it's not safe. This is the same situation that we saw with the Exxon Valdez, only bigger. Um, do not trust what you're being told right now because there's a lot of money being poured out of BP to scientific organizations and to universities. Um, and, you know, the main thing that we started to notice when, when push came to shove was that every time we were out on the – near the water or on the water, we ourselves would start to notice symptoms. We would notice this really bad smell in the air. Our eyes would, our eyes would start to burn. Our throats would start to burn. I noticed the skin on my feet was starting to peel off. I was starting to get rashes on my chest. So Josh immediately was like, you know, and he talked to some people who were savvy, who were scientists, who had been through this before, who said, absolutely, do not expose yourself to this. So Josh... Mm-hmm mandated that we, thank goodness for this, mandated that we get Tyvek suits and that we get respirators. Now, I thought at that time, I guess I was naive, I thought it was a bit of an extreme move for us to do that. I, you know, I, I actually believed a lot of what I was hearing and a lot of what I was seeing in the media and on the signs. And, you know, I knew that there was a risk, but I didn't know the extent of what that risk was. And, um, you know, we were the only ones out there on the boat, on the fishing boat, wearing respirators. The, 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 um, the boat driver didn't feel like, he felt like the damage had already been done and there was no point for him to wear one. But when other fishermen and other boats approached us, they'd tell us, take off those masks. Um, but we kept them on. Thank goodness, because you had some pretty significant health impacts, didn't you, Rebecca? Talk to us about what happened to you. And most interestingly, I thought the shot that you had of you in the medical clinic talking with the doctor and some of the things he said about what happened to you, that really blew me away. Talk to us about that. You know, there were some people that we were starting to interview that were having some severe health conditions. 
Um, people we would talk to had, this is kind of gross, so if you're, you're squeamish, don't listen. But, um, people were having blood coming out of their nose, out of their ears, out of their anus. Um, people were having their organs enlarged, their kidneys were, you know, twice the size of what they should be. Um, people were really, people were getting really sick. At the same time that we were interviewing people who were having these symptoms, I started to have symptoms. I started having blood in my urine. I started to have this rash on my chest that burned and wouldn't go away. Um, and I, I was, I started getting sick. I got chemical pneumonia was finally what one doctor told me I had. So we went um, down to one of the local doctors in Gulf Shores, Alabama, um, Dr. Funk was his name, Gregory Funk, mm-hmm. and um, we filmed the interview with him. And what he told me was that he definitely what I was experienced was a result of exposure to the oil and dispersant that was in the air that we were all breathing in because the dispersant you know, was oxidizing the oil and it was in the atmosphere. So even if you weren't on the water you were, and you were near the water, you were breathing in this toxic stuff and it was getting on your skin. Mm-hmm. And the doctor himself even was experiencing symptoms. He had burning eyes, burning throat. He had a rash on his chest. So, and, you know, and this is a medical doctor who was telling us that 50% of the patients that he was seeing were coming in with the same symptoms. Unbelievable. And that's certainly not what we were seeing in the mainstream media. Josh, talk about this dispersant that was used. In fact, BP couldn't have even used it in their own country. Isn't that right? I mean, talk to us about this substance. Well, the irony of Corexit is, as you said, uh, it's, it's banned in all but very exceptional cases in England. So here we've got a, here we've got a very clear, uh, directive from the Queen's country that this is not to be used. And the EPA uh, has approved this as a dispersant. It can be used in California. It can be used in Florida. It can be used in the Arctic. It can be used in Alaska. It's a neurotoxin. It's also a hemolytic, which means it's a blood thinner. In the specific case of Corexit, it contains something called 2-butoxyethanol. It breaks down the cell wall of the red blood cell and allows anything that's being uh, mixed or carried or mishable with that liquid to enter the cell. Well, in this case, the dispersant was sprayed to hide the oil. It was sprayed so that the oil would go away. You know, if you know basic chemistry, you know that you don't spray something on something else and that something else just disappears. It's not magic liquid or magic ink. So essentially what it did is it took the oil, and you know oil is not mixable in water, and it made the oil mixable with water. It had the added effect of taking oil, little droplets, and making those droplets attracted to anything that's a biological substance. So fish, turtles, uh, small flora, small fauna, which is the basis for the food chain, and unfortunately, human beings. Mm-hmm. So anybody who was around the oil corexit mixture, whether they were around the surf of the water, where the water is splashing or where the boats are going across or where the waves are coming in, all of that uh, aerosol, or, you know, when you go to the beach, you get wet. Well, that's mm-hmm. because the, there's so much water in the air. All of that water in the air was mixed with oil and dispersant. So if you walked onto the beach, you breathed it, it got on your skin, and that's why... Thousands of these cases started showing up, people with all of these symptoms, uh, and 
in so much as you know we don't have specific evidence, uh, people reported that friends and family dropped dead suddenly. There have been a number of, of deaths with uh, inconclusive coron- uh, reports as to why that person died. But these are people who are working on the cleanup program. These are people who are direct exposure victims to oil and dispersant. So, you know, it's a pretty clear correlation that uh, this super, super dangerous liquid that we know causes damage to unborn fetuses, we know causes damage to liver, kidney, all the blood-forming organs, and we know it was mixed in some quantity between 2 million gallons, which is BP's official report, and 40 million gallons, mostly in the Louisiana area, mostly near shore or onshore or in marshes, which is the unofficial scientific uh, study report. So there was a tremendous, you know, 40 million gallons may not sound like a lot, but when you mist it into the air, it can cover an area the size of Texas. So we're talking about extremely concentrated spraying of this um, extremely toxic material. And the sad thing about it is it's still on the EPA's approved list of dispersants. And if you have an oil spill anywhere in the country at any time, you can uh, use this, and it is. You might as well spray Agent Orange. Well, and the thing the is, women, a lot of the women along the Gulf Coast have also reported um, high rates of miscarriages. And one toxicologist that I spoke with, who interviewed me, she shared with me that at least one of the people, one of the women that she was working with, had had a malformed baby as a result of exposure to oil and dispersant. And when I, when she asked me if Josh and I were planning on having a family, and I said yes. She told me that I should not have kids. And oh my was, gosh! Yeah, that was pretty. That was really a devastating moment um, for us. And then, of course, I was so grateful that Josh had been looking out for our, our well-being and demanded the, the gas masks. And of course, I believe I can heal myself. And I've talked to other doctors who've said, "Well, maybe you shouldn't have kids just yet, uh, but it looks like you're on a, a path of healing." And, and I, my only wish is that that women in the Gulf Coast have access, and all of the people in the Gulf Coast get access to some form of detox and healing so that they can um, hopefully have better numbers than what we saw with cleanup workers and local residents who were exposed during the Exxon Valdez spill. You know, it's funny because we have so many different topics on Go Green Radio, and so many of them come back to two agencies that um, I think the American public really believes are out there looking out for our safety, and that's the FDA and the EPA. And this seems like an epic fail on their part. How do you feel about the performance of the EPA and the FDA based on what you know of this situation? I, you know, uh, FDA, um, we can probably speak a little less to that, only that they opened the fishing grounds uh, with very clear evidence that the fish were toxic. You know, we just got a a recent photograph of a shrimp that was sent to um, Scottsdale, Arizona, where some people bought it in a grocery store. They peeled open the shrimp, and oil oozed out of the shrimp. Oh. So that's your FDA at work. Um, <laughs> and, and of course, shrimp are bottom feeders. Maybe not the best thing to eat in the world anyway. But <laughs> in terms of the EPA, uh, it is an abysmal failure of bureaucracy and, and extreme... Um, if it's not malfeasance, it's just before malfeasance. It's just at the point where you know that humans and the environment are going to suffer, but you're going to look the other way because you have a good bureaucratic job in Washington, D.C. with a good pension fund. 
And that is really the epitome of uh, failure in public safety. So I, I would uh, be happy to take uh, anybody at the EPA to task who is responsible for this, this method. The problem is you can't take something off the approved dispersants list. You can't remove it because the way the law is set up, you can only get them approved. There's no removal process. Oh, and this is unbelievable. This is, this is just the failure of bureaucracy. It really is the height of the Peter principle, where you promote people to one level above where they're actually competent. And so, it's not that we need to abolish the EPA, as the GOP uh, keeps saying. We don't need an abolished EPA. We need a smart EPA. We need an EPA 2.0. We need an effective EPA. And if we have to sue them into having them be effective, then so be it. Uh, there's one large environmental organization that's now suing the EPA over Corexit. And uh, whatever methods we have to use to corral that organization into effectiveness, I think there are good people at the EPA. There are heroes at the EPA, mm-hmm. um, wonderful, wonderful people who want to do good work. But I'm not clear that the leadership is, is in that category. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I would question you know, very seriously what the motives of the current uh, EPA administration are based on what we've seen. Well, and, you know, this isn't the only incident that has people questioning that. I mean, when we talk about genetically modified organisms and um, even, you know, our food supply, there are questions about the EPA's performance in terms of, you know, what gets approved and uh, what is um, exposed to public knowledge so that people can make choices about their their food. Um, you know, I, I can't help but wonder what you believe the impact will have on the wildlife and the, the fishing industry uh, for the long haul. I mean, based on what you're seeing and what you know, Josh, about the area, uh, how long is this going to be an issue? Is there any hope of everything going back to normal in the area? I think long term there is there is hope for some level of um, environmental restoration, but it, the damage is so uh, is so visceral. There are a number of photographs now published on the internet that show uh, wildlife areas right before the oil spill happened and wildlife areas now. And it's not that the, there is a lack of wildlife because that's part of it. It is that the erosion uh, rate has accelerated in those areas. Now, there are plenty of places in southern Louisiana where my grandfather used to walk and hunt and fish that no longer exist. We lose about a football field of land every 38 minutes. It's an astonishing number. Hard to believe. Uh, but I've literally seen in my lifetime places where I used to go that no longer exist. It's just water now. So... It, you know, what happens when a root system is killed, what happens when a, essentially what's like the Everglades are marshes, when those are killed, uh, land disappears because the plants are literally holding the land in place. So I think, you know, we've got a real hard set of choices to make um, as, as conservationalists, which mm-hmm. is do we want to have uh, a southern Louisiana um, Ecosphere? Do we want that that biome to continue to exist or not? Because if not, we don't have to do anything. It's going to go away. Uh, mm-hmm. If we want it to continue to exist, Lower Louisiana 
needs a tremendous amount of environmental help. It needs a tremendous amount of love. It needs a tremendous amount of money. It needs a tremendous amount of volunteer support. We've seen that before. Um, maybe it's time to see that again. And I think if nothing is done, uh, it is heartbreaking, but it, it is going to be one of the examples that people will point to of this generation's failure. They're going to say, look, you know, look at what southern Louisiana used to be, this incredible tropical paradise, and look at what we let it become, a series of oil refineries and pipes. And, uh, you know, most of, most of the major southern cities either gone or, or exposed directly to the Gulf. So, it, you know, it's really up to our, up to your listeners, Jill. It's up mm-hmm. to uh, people of influence and people with money and people with power and people with time on their hands who can volunteer. The fate of Louisiana is definitely at a crossroads, and and how that's going to play out depends a hundred percent on human power and human pressure. And uh, that's why we made the movie, honestly, because you know we're passionate. We'd love to see it continue for our children. Absolutely. You know, one of the most striking parts of the film that I want to spend some time on was the relationship between Big Oil and the U.S. government. You had some absolutely jaw-dropping facts, (laughs) and I don't want to spoil it all. I want people to buy the movie and see it for themselves, but how would you characterize the relationship between Big Oil and the U.S. government? I'll just say one word, cozy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's probably the nicest way that you could characterize it <laughs> tell us a little bit more about about what you found out Rebecca you want to take that yeah I mean it was so startling for me I definitely was um, I had an idealistic vision of how our democracy worked here in the United States before we did all of this to make the big six we, when we went to D.C. we interviewed so many Congress people and senators who all told us basically the same thing, which is that if you want to get elected, you have to have a substantial amount of money to be able to run your campaign. So if you want to run for Congress, you know, you need up to $5 million. If you want to run for Senate, you need between 10 and $50 million. And if you want to run for president, that starts at $850 million. Well, where are you going to get that money? And because of the way that campaign financing currently is in place, you can receive large, large donations from corporate entities without ever having to disclose how much you received and where that money came from. And these Congress people and senators told us that they knew, they know very well, that if they want to get reelected, that they better make sure they don't vote against the people that are giving them the money. And the majority of the money is flowing from the largest corporations, which happen to be oil companies. So it's, it's a sad day, I've learned, in our country when our politicians who are supposed to be representing us are in fact beholden to these large oil companies so that they can get reelected. And it sounds all very sinister and it makes our politicians sound corrupt. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily the politicians that go in corrupt. I think they all go in, you know, really wanting to serve their country, really wanting to represent their people. But what happens is that the system is flawed. It's fixed. We are in a big fix where our politicians are forced to take money from oil companies. Not all of them take money from oil companies. Some of them don't. Some of the ones we spoke to don't. But most of them do, and it makes them have to do the bidding of these large oil companies while they're in office. Well, and, you know, in as much as you made a good point earlier, Rebecca, that each of us who are living uh, on an oil-based economy have some culpability in 
what happened, you know, with the BP Deepwater um, Horizon oil spill, we have culpability in this issue as well. The reason that it costs so much to run for Congress, and by the way, they have to do it every two years. Senators, it's every six years. But when you think about somebody in the House of Representatives, they have to run for office every two years, which means they have to raise that amount of money continuously in order to run. And why do they need that much money? To reach voters with their message. Well, guess what? If voters were doing their own homework <laughs> and, and looking, you know, to, to find out who these candidates are um, a little bit more proactively instead of waiting for commercials on cable news channels to feed them 30 seconds worth of information, maybe it wouldn't cost so much to run for office. So, you know. A little bit of uh, civic engagement would go a long way Absolutely. as well. And there's good candidates out there, and there are good politicians out there. I mean, that's one of the things that we show in the movie. You know, it's not that, that these people go in bad. Nobody, nobody wants to go in and be a corrupt politician. That's, you know, that's not the, the situation. It's just the way that we have our system set up, as I said, um, it forces them to play this game that, at the end of the day, makes us, the people, have our voices not well represented. Right. It, it is, it's kind of set up against us. Now, I want to end this, um, this segment with lots of hope and lots of action. I'd love for you guys to talk about some of the things that our listeners could do right now, this week, this month, to be part of the solution to make our country, um, safer, healthier, cleaner, transition to those infinite sources of, of fuel versus finite natural resources. Talk about some of the actions we can take. Can I, can, can I go first, Josh, and then Please. maybe you can share yep. your thoughts? Go for it. Um, you know, for me, my, my single request that I make of people, after having witnessed everything down in the Gulf, having personally experienced this, um, you know, and after having blamed, you know, our government and having blamed oil companies and then coming through the other side and really recognizing that that doesn't do any good. It doesn't make any difference for me to point a finger at the oil companies or for me to point a finger at the system. The only thing that I can actually do myself is to make a change in my own life. And the number one thing that we can do to um, shift the system, to you know, take our power back as people, is to stop giving oil companies our money which means that we stop filling up our cars on gasoline. That is the main thing. That is the number one thing I think that we can do. And in my opinion, it's patriotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there are several ways that people can get off of oil right now today. We've made two movies about it. One of them is called Fuel and one of them is called Freedom. Um, and they're both available for people to watch. But, um, you know, every car on the road today is it can be an alternative fueled car. It's just a matter of finding out the research. I mean, we modified our Prius. It's now an electric vehicle. Um, you can run your car on ethanol. You can run your car on biodiesel. You can run your car on methanol. There are so many ways that we can get off of oil right now today so that you no longer have to go to the pump and give oil companies your money. It just takes some innovation. And the people that are doing it, you know, they're, they're the early adopters. They're the ones that are leading the way for others and making it so it can become a widespread um, thing that everyone does, and that really is the goal. So if you're listening to this, get online, find out where the lo- nearest local biodiesel co-op is or where the nearest local ethanol station is. There's over 2,000 ethanol stations in the U.S., so most likely there's one near you, and you can run ethanol in any gasoline car with either zero or very little modification to your car. 
Um, and in my opinion, that is the number one thing that we as a human race can do right now to create a better future. And I'm going to give everybody an app for that because there is one. If you, uh, go- or not Google, if you search Flex Fuel in your, um, app store, you can find an app that will show you based on your geolocation, the closest, um, fuel stations that sell E85 and other alternative fuels. I'm so sorry that we're out of time because I could talk to you guys all day, but thank you so much for making this movie and thanks for being our guests. For those of you who want to find out more, please go out to www.thebigfixmovie.com. Get a copy, share it with your friends, have a movie night, and thank you, Josh Rebecca, for joining us. Thank you, Jill. Jill, thanks. Thanks, and thanks to all your listeners out there as well. All righty. Well, we'll be back same time, same place, folks, next week with more Go Green Radio. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.